Welcome to Sunstorm, where we get real about what's happening in the world and what we're doing about it, because we are the light in the storm. Hi, I'm Ai-jen Poo. And I'm Alicia Garza. And I just got to say, I am so excited to be here with you today. I know, I'm so happy. And I'm so excited that Sunstorm is finally out in the world. It's here. It's so awesome that I people love, love it. I love it, I love it, I love it. So there's so much goodness to come. And as the notorious B.I.G. used to say, if you don't know, now you know. (laughs) (laughs) So today it's just going to be us two ladies on the pod. And I'm really stoked about this, actually, because now that we have Sunstorm out in the world, we thought that it would be a good time Just get a little personal, you know, a little one-on-one. We're going to give you a sneak peek into our personal stories in a way that we've never really talked about them. Yes, we are. So let's get it cracking. And I have a question for you, Aijin, which is, you're such an amazing adult. So what were you like as baby Aijin? Oh, apparently I was really aggressive. (laughs) You were flipping tables? I was flipping tables. My mom said that I could never get through a meal without throwing food all over the table, all over everybody else. It's excellent. Like on the walls. I can't. I can't. That is so opposite of how you are. I was an aggressive food thrower. Okay, so was there a point that you remember when that shifted for you? There's a the story that my mom tells a lot about preschool. When she used to come pick me up from preschool, I was always so mad because she would come late yes. and I would always be the last mm-hmm, kid to get picked mm-hmm. up from preschool. Shout out to last kids. But I was a respectful mm-hmm. Asian kid raised mm-hmm. by immigrants who I couldn't be mad at my mom, mm-hmm. but I would need to be mad. Yes. And usually it was at my teachers and usually about the fact that they just couldn't pronounce my name. I can't. What did they call you? Ijin. Ayyam. Uh-uh. No, stop it. And then the rest of the kids would be like, Ijin the pigeon. Uh, no. You know, and it would just, Mm-mm. it was just on and on. So Mm-mm. every day she'd come and I'd be like pouting in the corner, mad about my teachers not saying <laughs> my name right. And everybody and you needed to get it out too. And yeah, totally. Oh. Shout out to baby Aijin. Yeah. But I must have turned a corner on that because people still call me all kinds of stuff and it's okay. You're like the most chill person (laughs) I have ever met. You are like just so even, so even. But then if you really got to turn up and flip a table, it's on, but it's like (laughs) well-deserved. You know what I'm saying? I like to think that if I'm mad, there's a good reason. (laughs) Well, my mom used to say that I was the baby from heaven. Oh. She said that I would sleep through the night, but I would wake up super early and she would wake up and I'd just be kicking it in my crib, cooing and Aww. which is kind of how I am now in the yeah. mornings. Like, oh, I'm going to greet the day and I'm just happy piddling around doing whatever I got to do and When Malachi gets up, I'm like, I have done the laundry. I have done the dishes. I've made breakfast. I've already gone to work out. I've done yoga. And now I'm going to work. He's like, what time is it? I'm like, it's nine. (laughs) (laughs) The morning is your friend. And it was your friend as baby Alicia. It sure was. It sure was. I'm a morning person forever and ever through and through. Okay, let's take it back to growing up. Yes. So where did you grow up and who raised you? Well, I was 
born in Carmel, California. Um, my mom was, she had been working in the prisons actually in Monterey County. And we moved up to San Rafael and it was my mom and me and her twin brother, who is like one of my favorite uncles. And my mom worked in a laundromat. She did nails for a living. That's actually how she met my dad. And my mom also worked in the stockroom at Macy's. So somehow I ended up like in these weird little fashion shows that Macy's would do for kids. Yet. What? Wait. Oh, yes, there's pictures. I'd be in these like random Thule dresses. You must find these pictures. Barrettes, bows, the whole thing. Wow, was kind of you were a critical. Macy's model. I was child model. I was a child Macy's model. What about you? Where did you grow up? Where were you born? My mom came to this country for graduate school after she finished college in Taiwan. Excellent. What she was her to, discipline? She was in chemistry. Come through, moms. Mm-hmm. Chemistry at Carnegie Mellon. And my dad was also in graduate school, but he was in Baltimore. Oh. Yeah. Come through. So when she got pregnant with me, she was on her own. I grew up with stories about imagining my mom, wow. right, in her 20s, coming from a tropical island, figuring out how to live in the cold, and then getting pregnant with me. And I was born in February. So she was really pregnant. No wonder you were grumpy. (laughs) (laughs) And then she actually um, sent me to Taiwan to live with my grandparents Mm -hmm. so that she could finish school and work and do all the things that she was doing. So I spent a lot of time. I was potty trained by my grandparents. My first words were in Mandarin because of them. And then when I was old enough for preschool, I came back and we lived in Southern California until I was 12. Okay. And then moved to Connecticut. In Irvine, most of my friends were the children of immigrants, like my parents. And then moving to Connecticut, it was an all-white school. Mm. It was just me and Toya were the only non-white Come students through. in my class. Hey, Toya. Toya's a black if you're girl. Out there. Yeah. And so it was a huge shift for me just having to adapt to such different environments and such different contexts. How did you figure out how to adapt in those kinds of environments? I remember feeling really alienated all of sixth grade. And my teacher actually called my parents in for a parent-teacher conference because they were like Not the PT worried conference. about me. I think it happened maybe after I wrote my report on Don Johnson. Don Johnson, my G? <laughs> I know. Okay, so what class was this for? Under what circumstances were you writing reports about Don Johnson? Well, it was in sixth grade, and I was really into the show Miami Vice at the time. The show was excellent. And um, I think I read a story in a magazine about him and his struggle with alcoholism and addiction. And I remember thinking, like, wow, that's he went through a lot and I was moved by it. So I wrote a paper That's about amazing. it. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. And the teacher was like, of all the people that she could have chose, because you're supposed to write about somebody you admire. Okay. You of did. all the people. Well, what about you? What were some of the, the experiences or the moments that really defined your childhood growing up? So like, I love to read. My mom used to say she would lose me in the house she'd look up and be like, where is she? And I would actually be sitting (laughs) on the toilet reading books. Uh That was me. 
I was clumsy. I was nerdy. As I grew up, I was like angsty also. I had a lot of angst. Mm -hmm. You may know that my soundtracks as a kid included like, it wasn't like metal. Like it wasn't, I wasn't into hardcore metal, but I was into that like soft rocker metal. What's you know, like the Def Leppard, but like oh. the slow songs. And like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the two slow songs they would have on the album, I'd be like, yes! With, you know? the, with the lighter, oh, like. totally. Yes. And I still actually do those for karaoke. I know you do. I've mm-hmm. seen this. You know. I'm a witness. You know. I also was really obsessed with dressing myself, and I used to drive my mom crazy. One phase that I can remember is, do you remember that show, Beverly Hills 90210? Yes, of course. Okay, so I was obsessed with Shannon Doherty. Mm -hmm. And they had this little style back then where you had like the chokers and then they would wear the baby tees under like some slip. You know what I'm saying? So I thought that was really cute. And I went to my mom's lingerie drawer and got a slip and put on like a little baby tee underneath it. And tried to leave my house in the morning. And my mother, I never saw her so mad. First of all, she was like, get out of my stuff. (laughs) Second of all, you're not going to wear underwear outside. I was like, mom, everybody's doing it. She was like, you're not doing it. And I totally remember my dad was like, it's fine. Just let her go. If she wants to look crazy, she can look crazy. And my mom was like, Steven, shut up. Right. So then they were like kind of arguing. Yeah. But basically, my mom did a direct action on me. And she was like, I'm not driving you to school wearing what you're wearing. So we had like a little impasse. But me being the nerd I was, was like, I'm late and I have to go. So I changed. You caved. Yeah, I caved. Mom might have taught me my first first escalating tactic. Speaking of, what do you think are some of those moments that shaped your activism and how you think about the work you do right now? I think for me, it's people like my mother. Yeah. Honestly, I know I've talked about her a hundred times. No, not enough though. But she super shaped the way I see the world. My mom, you know, she left Toledo because she felt like she was too weird for her midwestern town and her pretty conservative family and her twin was like cool i'll go too (laughs) Um, and so you know my mom it was hard for her it was hard for her to be in a new place you know when she got pregnant with me she was with my dad who decided he wasn't really trying to be a dad Mm -hmm. and so she went from being in a relationship and talking about the future to trying to figure out what am I going to do as a 20 something year old that now is going to have a baby on my own and all the things that my mom did to like make things okay is what drives me right like when I think about women like my mom I'm like, yeah, you're up in the middle of the night and you're trying to figure out the bills and everybody else is asleep, but you're still trying to figure out how am I going to make this work? Mm -hmm. And during the day, you're spending your time hustling, trying to get money. I'm trying to make sure your kids are okay, trying to make sure your kids have more than you had, right? Mm -hmm. There's that whole thing. Yeah. And 
there's not really time to pursue what it is that feeds you. And so for me, what really drives me is this idea that like everybody should be able to do the things that feed them when they're awake and not just when everybody else is asleep. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my mom also had a very clear sense of, it wasn't like morality, right and wrong. It was like, I get what people got to do to get by, right? And so I got no judgment on anybody. And um, the first time I ever got involved in activism was around condoms, if you can believe it. Hmm. Condoms, yeah. So my school district was having this whole debate about whether or not there should be contraception in schools. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was at that time when it was like, George Bush was president, the first one. And there was all this stuff about family values, which was actually like Christian values. Right. And this whole focus on the family thing. And they were totally obsessed with women's bodies and super obsessed with teen pregnancy and super obsessed with like talking about sex or talking about abortion. Like they actually passed a law that year that was the global gag rule that basically Mm -hmm. said nobody would get federal funding if they even talked about abortion. So I got super politicized around that because- How old were you? I was 12. And in my house, we talked about everything (laughs) and we did not mince words. My mom didn't like use code words for your body parts. She was like, that's your vagina, okay? It's not your wee-wee, it's not any of that, right? (laughs) Like she was very- about it and I didn't get stork stories, you know, I didn't get any of those. When two people love each other, she was like, no, check this out. Basically, sex makes babies and babies are expensive. So if you're not ready to pay for a baby, don't have sex. And I was like, that's pretty logical. It's pretty simple. Right. So then, of course, when you're having this debate about should there be condoms in a school nurse's office for somebody who is having sex but maybe can't talk to their parents about it, wouldn't it just make sense to, like, have it there so Mm -hmm. they could be safe rather than, like, encouraging them to take more risks that are more dangerous and that might end up in the thing that you say you're trying to prevent? seemed like a no-brainer to me. So I was all about it. And we won, by the way. There were eventually condoms in school nurses' offices. Yay! Represent! (laughs) That was your first victory? That was my first. What about yours? I think my first victory was in college. Mm -hmm. Actually, when I got to college, I wanted to be an ethnic studies major. Excellent. I wanted to study the history of my community and how we helped to shape the culture and politics in this country. And there was no way for me to study ethnic studies at Columbia, really. Mm. There were a few classes. I think there were only like two Asian American studies classes Mm -hmm. at the time. And of course, I took them both the first chance I got. And they were taught by adjunct professors who weren't even, you know, permanent faculty. And there were a whole bunch of us. I mean, Columbia, where I went to college, is in a city that at the time was 72% people of color. And Columbia prides itself on being about the experience of being in the city. And yet all of us who were on that campus, students of color, couldn't even study our own histories, our own literature, or just even know what part of the American story was ours. And so we launched a campaign to get an ethnic studies department on campus so that you could major in Asian American studies or Latino studies or ethnic studies. There was already an African American studies program, but we wanted more. 
and especially in the programs that didn't exist and more resources. We wanted permanent faculty lines and the ability to major and minor and all the things that any other legitimate academic discipline would have. Yep. Um, it was an awesome experience because it was multiracial coalition building. Mm-hmm. It was like people coming together. And then we launched this campaign and we took actions like we took over the library and we took over Hamilton Hall, which is the English building for days. Nice. The Latino students did a hunger strike for 14 days. Wow. Yeah. And they slept out in tents in front of the library. Students came from all over the country to support us. It was a whole thing. It was amazing. And we actually won. That's what's up. We forced the administration to at least engage with us. And what ended up was the creation of the Center for the Study of Ethnicity and Race. Come through. At Columbia. Okay, but wait. So people were getting arrested, hunger striking. You're taking over buildings. You slept in a building for a couple days, right? Y'all did shifts or however it happens. Yeah, yeah. What were your parents doing? Were your parents like, go, Ijen? Or were they like, bring your ass home? What are you doing? (laughs) They well, they didn't know about it got until it. they got a letter. Oh, yeah. that I was on probation because and if you won, I though. did another thing, no. At that point, we were still in the thick of oh. it. Oh, shoot! Yeah, they got a letter. We were a few of us were put on probation, and basically it said if you did another thing like this, you know, you wouldn't graduate. And my mom <laughs> was not happy yes. <laughs> she was like what do you have sacrifices so yeah that is so funny so i could hear was, her but i graduated talking to you through clenched teeth i feel like that's like a universal mom thing <laughs> you yeah. know that's when you know you really pissed them off i mean she's really <laughs> supportive of the activism in general but education is number one oh, and yeah. always has been absolutely and so that was just like a major major violation (laughs) and then then, when you won was she like i'm really proud of you i don't know if she said those words but i think i felt you think she felt it for sure Um, Okay, so my fandom on you actually Mm -hmm. started when we were at the U.S. Social Forum in Atlanta, Georgia. And actually, I think you guys just won the Bill of Rights. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, I knew you, but like from meetings and stuff. And I walked in this room and you know how people that you like read about, they're like larger than life in your mind. And I walked in this room and I was like, she's regular AF and I love her. <laughs> That's literally what I thought, like 100%. And I believe I even told our mutual friend Marisa about this. Yeah. I was like, dude, she's a badass and she's like, like us, like regs, AF. I remember hearing stories about the organizing you were doing in, in San Francisco, in Bayview Hunters Point to protect and preserve the last black community in San Francisco and the incredible work you were doing, building with anyone and everyone you had to. It was (laughs) like the churches and the nation of Islam and the um, block association that you were building and the teachers and, Mm -hmm. and just building this incredible coalition. And I remember thinking, 
that is so badass. <laughs> and then next thing I know, it's like you're running an organization and you're like 30 yeah, or something yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. In school, getting your degree, That's graduate right. degree. That's right. Teaching. Yeah, what all was the I things. Doing? You were doing so many things. I was like, how is she pulling all this off? That is so badass. What was I doing? And I was like, how amazing would it be if she came and worked with us? What if she was on this team? Yes, and then you hollered at me. I loved it. I loved it. I was so excited. And I kind of was like, if you ever want to come work with us. Dude, you did. Open door. And I was like, she's a boss for that. You were like. I was totally courting you for years before. You were so good. We were in a hotel in D.C. And somehow you had gotten me to come out there and do some training for the members around multiracial solidarity. Mm -hmm. So I had come in the night before because the workshop was early in the morning. And I remember like it was some Congress or something for NDWA. Mm -hmm. So there's domestic workers everywhere. The hotel was going bonkers. And I saw you and you were like, hey. And we caught each other outside and you were just like so slick and sly and excellent. And you were like, you know, what do you envision for your future? <laughs> did I really say you those did. words? You were like, where do you, oh, where do you see yourself in like five years? And I was like, oh my God, I never really thought about that. <laughs> it's so good. It was so good. This, dear listeners, is why iGen is the organizer. I was like, I got a vision for you. Yeah. And then you were like, you know, I mean, we're just here trying to build power for women of color. And our team is like all women of color and we're just trying to like make us awesome. That's just what we're up to. So, and we're basically missing you. Dude, you literally said, when you're ready, there's a place for you. And I was like, (laughs) she can't be serious. But I tried to play it off. I was like, yeah, yeah, I can't do that right now. But that's winning. The fact that you came and joined the team, I feel like that was one of my biggest victories. We're so lucky that you made that choice. I'm lucky. And it's all about the squad. It's all about the team and the community. It is. And the sisterhood. It is. I mean, but you were doing the exact same thing, trying to accomplish what had not been done in the country. And like going at it over and over and over again. Like, had you ever passed a statewide bill before? No, I had no idea how to pass a bill (laughs) in Albany. And how long did it take again? Seven years. And each time you went back, like, I'm out here. We're going to do it again. We got raked over the coals every year. But look, I'll tell you from across the country, the domestic worker bill of rights fight was like, literally the hallmark for what we were all trying to do. So even though it felt like, (laughs) you know, sometimes we talk about crawling towards the light on your hands and knees and like there's gravel in your palms and the knee meat is down to the white meat, right? Oh yeah, and it's bloody. We knew it was that, but that fight was all of our fight. Mm -hmm. Like we were cheering you guys on every single step of the way being like, yo, they are moving legislation on the state level. Like we're just trying to pass ordinances in these cities, you know, and deal with these crooks. (laughs) And you all are like really taking on power. And then when you won, like literally when you won, like we were like, that's huge one, but also 
it felt like our whole movement had won, Mm -hmm. you know? Well, it took a whole movement from California and Massachusetts and Texas. Even (laughs) people came from everywhere to lobby with us, to do the domestic slide, our our version of the electric slide in front of the state Capitol building. And um, year after year, the way we stayed in it was all of that support from people all over the country. And it's so fun to reflect on it now because it's been 10 years, right? Yes, it has. The bill passed, the first one in New York passed in 2010. That's amazing. And here we are in 2020. And how many bills have passed now? We have nine states total plus shout out to Seattle and Philly. Represent, that's like a bill a year. (laughs) I mean, if you really want to break it down, yeah. right? So yeah, it's like, okay, it took good. seven years to win the first one. And then it's just like multiplying like wildfire all over the country. We got, a, we got lots of states to go. Oh, yeah. So here's the deal, listeners. You got to hear a little bit about me and my homegirl. And we want to hear about you. Where did you come from? Where were you born? What were you raised like? you? Who were you as a baby? When was the first time you won something? We want to know. Hit us up. I am Alicia Garza. And I'm Ai-Jen Poo. And you can follow us at Sunstorm Pod. And of course, subscribe and tell all your friends to subscribe. You can find us anywhere you can find podcasts, which includes Apple Podcasts. It includes Google. It includes Spotify. And the best part, it's free 99. Free 99. That's my fave. (laughs) Sunstorm is a project of the National Domestic Workers Alliance in collaboration with Participant. Sunstorm is executive produced by Alicia Garza, Ai-Jen Poo, Christina Mevs-Apgar, and Jess Morales-Riquetto. Sunstorm is produced by Amy S. Choi and Rebecca Lara of the Mashup Americans. Producers are Jocelyn Gonzalez, Shelby Sandlin, Mary Philip Sandy, and Mia Warren. Original music composed by Jen Kwok and Jody Shelton. And what were your first words? Maybe egg roll? Yes! <laughs> <laughs>